you ever heard the story of the elephant that wandered into the village that was full of people who are blind? It's like a sort of a, a fable of sorts. If you haven't heard it before, let me tell it to you. <clears throat> so it's a quite simple story. An elephant wanders into a village, and the village is full of people who are blind. And, and they've never been in the presence of an elephant before. And so the villagers come out, and the first villager reaches out and is trying to understand what this strange creature is, and he grasps hold of a leg of the elephant, and he tells his friends, Oh, it's like a tree. The strange creature is a tree. But another villager comes out and says, Oh no, I, I'm feeling around and what I feel is like a fan. The elephant, or whatever this is, is like a fan. Another one comes out, grabs a hold of the trunk and says, No, this strange creature is like a snake. This story, and it goes on and on like this until the villagers begin to squabble with one another because each one of them is arguing that they are right. The story is often then used to say, Well, actually they're all right, aren't they? An elephant is like a tree, it is like a fan, it is like uh, a snake. The story is sometimes used to illustrate a point that all religions can be true. We may just not have the perception to be able to see and appreciate how they're all true. I think it's a wonderful story and it's a wonderful fable and I think it can be used to make a lot of good points. But I don't think that's one of them. I don't think it's fair to use that story to that end. Let me give you a couple reasons why. Actually, and I'm getting them from Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, and I've referenced it through this study a couple of times, Confronting Christianity, as well as her other book, Ten Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. She highlights a couple of good points. She says, one, here's a problem with the story. The villagers are blind, but the person telling the story can see. Now you think if you tell that story and make your point that you're being so respectful of all the religions of the world, but Rebecca argues that actually the exact opposite is happening. That story is not respectful to all the other religions of the world. It's actually quite demeaning because what you're saying to the Muslim and the Christian and the person of Jewish faith and the Buddhist is you're saying, actually, oh, you're so sweet. You're blind. Let me tell you what reality is. Reality is that you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. But but you're all right, and let me. this is what it is. It's an elephant. See, the story comes from a posture of great arrogance. Oh, my friends of different religious beliefs, let me tell you that it's not as you think it is. It's how I think it is, because I'm telling the story and I can see all things. It's actually not respectful of people of other religions, if you think about it. Another problem that Rebecca highlights is this notion that all religions are equally true. That's a problem. It sounds nice in the story because the ear complements the leg and the trunk complements, and they can all come together and make a full picture as, as the different aspects all complement one another. But the problem we run into as we compare world religions is they don't all complement each other. They actually stand in direct contradiction to one another. And we could make that point a number of different ways, but we'll just focus on the person of Jesus. So let's look at someone who is of the Jewish faith. Now, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe he's the Son of God. And if they believe he exists, they certainly don't believe that he rose from the dead. Look at those who follow the Islamic faith, our Muslim friends. They don't believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. They believe that it appeared as if he died, but he didn't. 
But those of us here who follow the Christian faith, well, it says in our scriptures that if Jesus didn't die and raise from the dead, then we are of all men to be most pitied. So if Jesus didn't literally die and literally rise from the dead, we have no faith. So there's not a space for us to like agree to disagree on the person of Jesus. We directly contradict with one another. One of us is right and the rest of us are wrong. So as nice as the story sounds and as helpful as the story can be in other ways, and I'm going to use it here in just a second to make a different point, I don't think it's fair to use it to that end. But for the sake of our time this morning, we're going to talk about what did Jesus teach about the afterlife? So let's just imagine the elephant is the afterlife. So he walks into the village. That is, it's the afterlife. So out come all of us. And we're blind and we're reaching out to try and understand, okay, what is the afterlife? And some say, well, it's, it's heaven. And others say it's hell. And others say, well, you cease to exist. And others say, oh, it's, it's reincarnation. And others say, well, it's like nirvana. Now, most people around us are going to say, oh, it's either it's heaven or hell. But then even in those categories, they just come up with their own imagination of what it is. So some of them say that heaven is for all people. Others say, well, no, heaven is only for good people. And others, like myself, would say, well, no, heaven is actually for those who have faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But others would say, well, no, heaven is just really babies and clouds and harps. Hell, okay, hell say, uh, some people say hell is just a party. Others say hell is a place of eternal torment and fire. Others say hell is just for really, really, really bad people. The rest are going to go to heaven. Others think hell is just an idea. The question is, can we all be right? Can we all be right? Can we all just have in some way all be right? And I don't, I don't think we can. I think Jesus is the narrator, and Jesus is the one who has sight, and Jesus defines the afterlife. Americans are confused on this topic. In 2021, in the midst of the pandemic, the Pew Research Center decided to do some research on what Americans believe about the afterlife. We were all living with greater awareness of our own mortality. And so they did their research, and this is their result. 73% of Americans believe in heaven. And 62% believe in hell. I'm going to get to some more details on the statistics that are important in just a second. But I'm going to pause for a moment and give you something that's not important. But I just i am going to vent for a second. In their findings, they found out that 92% of Christians believe in heaven. So on the one hand, that's like, oh, that's good. But you sit on that statistic for more than a few seconds and you're ready to start pulling your hair out, even the little bits that, that Chuck and I have. Okay, 8% of Christians don't believe in heaven? <laughs> I mean, that's what makes me want to pull my hair out. How can you check a box on a survey that you're a Christian here and then the next question check, but I don't believe in heaven? It's just like... It just blows my mind. The other one that blows my mind from the research is this. 26% of agnostics believe in heaven. And 3% of atheists believe in heaven. Now, if you're an agnostic or an atheist this morning in the room or online with us, I'm so happy that you're here with us. And I don't want to insult you at all. I just want you to pick a side. 
because it frustrates me that you cherry pick. You don't have enough evidence to believe in God, but you're certainly going to believe that you go to heaven when you die. I just don't think it's a fair position, particularly for the atheist. But anyway, I have vented and we'll move on. 72% of Americans believe that heaven is real, but there is no consensus on how we get there. So all the blind villagers are like, okay, here's how you get there. 39% say the people who do not believe in God can go to heaven. 32% say that only people who believe in God can go to heaven. There's another research group called Barna, and they do a lot of research. Back in 2003, they did similar research, and they found a statistic that I think is really interesting. They learned that just half of 1%, so that's a, half of 1% of Americans expect to go to hell upon their death. So basically every American you meet as you leave here today assumes that they will not go to hell when they die. That's a, that's a sobering statistic to, to realize. But among those who expect to go to heaven, there are differences in how they anticipate getting there. So 43% of these Americans who are surveyed believe that they will go to heaven because they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. Wonderful. I'm in that 43%. 15% believe they will go to heaven because they have tried to obey the 10 commandments. Another 15% they say, well, they believe they'll go to heaven because they are basically a good person. And 6% believe that they will go to heaven simply because God loves all people. Okay. Let's zoom in on the 43%. Let's make an assumption right now that, that all of us in the room believe that if you have to trust in Jesus as your Savior in order to go to heaven. So out of that pool of people, half of us believe that if you just live a good life, you'll go to heaven. So it's like saying like, well, I believe that in order for me to go to heaven, I need to trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But I'll concede that if you live a good life, you'll go to heaven. So even within the church, there's a level that we're just, we're, we're blind villagers and we're just coming up with our own ideas about the elephant, about the afterlife. We're living out this parable, each of us making claims, and I just don't think we can all be right. And so what I've decided to do is surrender to Jesus. Because his story is compelling because I think it's, it's, it lines up with history and there's prophecy and for a whole other different list of reasons that we don't have time to go into today. I have decided to surrender myself to Jesus as the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. So anyone who can rise from the dead, I'm going to follow. And so Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what I've chosen to do is say, I'm going to surrender myself to his truth. And Jesus is the narrator. Jesus defines what this strange creature that is the afterlife is. So I'm going to listen to Jesus' words and let him define the afterlife for me. And I'm not going to pretend to define it for myself. And I'm not going to let you define it for me either because you're blind like I'm blind. I'm going to trust Jesus. So whoever you are this morning, my request of you in these coming moments is that you would listen to what Jesus taught about the afterlife. Because a whole bunch of blind people have been talking to a whole bunch of other blind people and convincing ourselves of things that just aren't what Jesus taught. So we have a, a series of, of verses that we're going to walk you through here in these next seconds um, about Jesus' teaching about the afterlife. And what you're going to notice is that the first thing that Jesus teaches about the afterlife and the thing he actually teaches about the afterlife more than anything else is that hell is real. 
And so here is some, these aren't even all, this is just some of Jesus' teaching on hell. Matthew seven thirteen, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Maybe you say, well, that's not hell. Well, I think you're wrong, but we'll keep going. Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13 to 14. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him in hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty five forty one. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark nine, forty three to forty eight. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. John five twenty five to 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's just a sampling of verses. It could have gone on. Nobody on the pages of Scripture talks about hell more than Jesus. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else on the pages of Scripture. Jesus talks about hell... Far more than he talks about heaven. Jesus talks about hell with greater detail, more vividly than he talks about heaven. Why? Just be prepared anytime you ask a why question of God to be frustrated with the answer. I think it's fair to say, though, that Jesus wants us to be aware of the reality of hell. Or else he wouldn't have taught about it so much. He wouldn't have talked about it in such detail. I think it's fair to make a simple point about what Jesus talked about the afterlife. Make the point that hell is real. So you ask her, well, what's it like? Well, I think the simplest way to define what it's like is it's like being separated from God. From Jesus. So, so Jesus is, is light and life and goodness. So hell is separation from that. So it's the exact opposite of it. Hell is darkness. Hell is death. Hell is torment. Because it is the exact opposite of Jesus. Well, who goes there? That sounds horrible. It does sound horrible. I think Jesus intended for it to sound horrible. Well, who goes there? Well, in the scriptures that we just read, back in Matthew 13, it says that his angels will round up all the causes of sin and all the lawbreakers. So this place is is for all lawbreakers, all of us who have sinned. You say, well, I haven't sinned as much as that guy has, and and that may be true. But it says that he's going to round up all the lawbreakers, all the sinful people. Romans 3.23, the Apostle Paul tells us, all have sinned. 
and fall short of the glory of God. So I think it's fair to say that hell is the, is the default destination of all people because all have sinned. We have a real problem. A real problem. And this is a difficult topic. Many people, myself included, hell is the biggest hurdle to overcome in the Christian faith. I don't like the fact that hell is the destination of all people unless they turn to Christ in faith. If I were in charge, I would change it. If I were writing Jesus' speeches, I would edit it out. But I'm not in charge, am I? And there's a quote that I have always remembered from Tim Keller. He says this, If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. What he's saying is, if the God you worship never disagrees with you, odds are you created a God in your own image. So I let that marinate for a minute and I realize, okay, so I think what I'm being asked to do is surrender myself to a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and infinitely greater and, and more loving than I am. He is the way. He is the truth. So I'm going to surrender myself to his truth, even when I don't like it. I'm going to choose to surrender myself to his truth and acknowledge that he has the truth and I'm blind. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about hell, and I'm not going to endorse every thought that C.S. Lewis ever had about hell, but some of his writing is very helpful. He writes this, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by the Christian church and has the support of reason. He goes on to write, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. So if you object to the doctrine of hell, here's the question Lewis gives us. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins? At all costs and to give a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. Lewis is saying, what would you have God to do? Wipe out all sin and offer you a fresh start, extending to you forgiveness? Lewis says, oh, but, but he has done so on Calvary. What do you ask him to do? To, to forgive them? Well, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. Lewis's famous words are these. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Lewis is saying God gave us creation. He gave us his son. He gave us his word. He seeks us out and he, and he offers us this relationship with him. But in the end, if people reject him, if people choose not to surrender to him and trust in him, then in the end, God says, well, there's free will. Ever, ever since the garden, ever since the creation of humanity, there's been free will. And so in the end, if you reject me, then, then God says to them, well, thy will be done. And go into eternity without me. 
Not, and you won't be in light, you'll be in darkness. And you won't be in life, you'll be in death. And you won't be in goodness, you'll be in torment. What does Jesus teach about the afterlife? He teaches that hell is real. And I choose to surrender to these teachings because he is infinitely more wise and good than me. And I ultimately don't look to hell, I ultimately look to the cross. Where on the cross, I see salvation from hell. I see Jesus on the cross forgiving me of my sins. Jesus, who never committed a sin, dies for me, the sinner, and for all have sinned. Rebecca McLaughlin highlights the reality that it's, it's very hard to find a good illustration for the cross. Because on the cross, you have a good character who dies for a bad character. And that's just not something we see in movies or in books. A good character dying for a bad character. Now, if you're like me and, and you're in like a, you know, I got little kids in my home who are watching Disney movies and stuff like that all the time, so Frozen, right? Frozen can be a, a beautiful illustration of the gospel. And, and we've used it that way with uh, kids' outreaches before. We say like, okay, at the end, Hans is going to, kill Elsa, but Anna steps in front and gives her life out of love for her sister. And that's kind of like what Jesus did, but it's not what Jesus did. Because what Jesus did is he's a good character. He gave his life for a bad character. So for it to really be more like the cross, it would have to be Anna willing to lay down her life for Hans, the villain. Think of one maybe you're more familiar with, Titanic. Remember on Titanic, that, that closing scene that, that people sometimes talk about, right? Like Jack's in the water. We say, well, why don't you get on the raft, Jack? That's a whole other debate. Um, but the point in the movie is that Jack gives up his space on the life raft to Rose. He's willing to sacrifice his life for hers. But that's not what happened on the cross. What happened on the cross would be more like Jack giving up his space on the life raft so that the villain could have a space on the life raft. Because you see in Romans 5, 7 to 8, it says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. But though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You and I don't have to go to hell. We don't have to. Jesus came down to earth to pay the penalty that your sins and my sins demand. He gave us a way. He gave us the truth. And he extends to us his life. And whenever I'm up here, I try to always make it as simple as possible. It's as simple as A, B, C. If we will admit that we're a sinner in need of salvation. And we will believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Believe that he forgave us of our sins and extends us this gift of life. And then we see, that's for choose. I'm going to choose to make him my king. I'm going to choose to surrender to him. And no matter what I feel like in this life, I'm going to humbly surrender to him and trust in his truth. It can be as simple as ABC. Admit, believe, and choose. And then you don't have to go to hell, but you can go to heaven. And what else does Jesus teach about the afterlife? He teaches that heaven is real. He does. He does talk much more about hell than about heaven. But in John 14, he does elaborate on heaven. And so in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus says these words about heaven. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus teaches us that heaven is real. And heaven is where his father has a home. And heaven is where Jesus is right now. He's in the father's home and he's preparing a place for you and for me. So that where he is there, you may be also. The most important thing you can understand about heaven this morning and the afterlife is that if you trust in Jesus, then you get to be with Jesus. That's why Jesus emphasizes that. He says, I am doing all of this so that where I am, there you may be also. Heaven is about being with Jesus. It's fun to imagine streets of gold. It's fun to mine the depths of scripture and find pieces about heaven and have a vivid imagination of what heaven might be like in glory. A great resource to that end is Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. It's a wonderful resource. You should read it. Bob Croker has already taken two groups of our church through that book. It's time well spent. But for the sake of time this morning, all you really need to know is that heaven is when you are with Jesus. And you wonder, why didn't Jesus expound more on heaven? Why didn't he talk more about it? Give us more description. He does talk about heaven. It does come up in his language. But if you'll notice in his language, it's often saying, my father who is in heaven. My father who is in heaven. Oh, my father who is in heaven. It's almost like Jesus is like, I don't, I don't need to elaborate. I told you everything you need to know. Heaven is where my father is. What more do you need to know? It's almost like if I, if I were separated from my wife for years, and years and years went by and we were separated, and then somebody said to me, oh, well, we're going to be able to reunite you with your wife. And then I'd say, okay, but... Um, Beach or mountains? What's the house like? How big's the kitchen? What's the temperature? What's the climate? Can you tell, can you explain to me? It's like, no, that's, that's fun. That's a, that's a fun conversation, but that's not the point, is it? That's not the point at all. The point is you're going to be with your wife. And so Jesus, maybe he doesn't elaborate on it because it's like, you know what? The most important thing is to know is that you're going to be with me. You're going to be with my father. And there's no need to elaborate beyond that. Jesus also uh, repeatedly refers to the kingdom of heaven. That's the other way it comes up in his language and in his teachings. 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses the term kingdom of heaven. And if you remember the Lord's Prayer, it goes like this, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus has a lot of teachings on the kingdom of heaven. And, he, and as you read the teachings of, uh, of Jesus, and, and then you synthesize them with the rest of the teachings of the Bible, you begin to have this, this tension that, that we resolve with this expression, heaven, the kingdom of heaven is already here, but, but not yet here. Because what we see from the teachings of Jesus is, is he came to bring the kingdom. He taught us to pray that the kingdom would come. But as you and I look around, the heaven is not here. But yet... Jesus is my king, and he reigns in my heart. And scripture tells me that I am right now, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I am not a citizen of the kingdom of this world. I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He is already king, and I am already living in the kingdom of heaven. I am a citizen of it. 
And yet it is certainly not, not here. It is, it is already in Jesus reigning in my heart, but it is not yet fully realized. We also see in the same sense that the eternal life that Jesus has given me is already present within me, but not yet fully realized. I already have the gift of eternal life. And when I die, when this body dies, I will continue on in my eternal life with Jesus more fully. So as Jesus teaches us about the afterlife, in some sense, he teaches us that it's already here. It's already in us. And that truth transforms us in this life and in the life to come. If you remember back to Abby's song earlier in the service, you don't know all of Abby's story, and I'm not going to tell her story for you, but you don't have to look further than her lyrics to see that Abby's had difficult times in her past. Her lyric says, I know that these scars have led me home. She talks about the pain that she's had in her past and she couldn't see him through the pain back then, but now she sees that pain was just drawing her closer to him. And so she writes lyrics like, go ahead and let those dark clouds roll. I don't have to face them on my own. I know this won't last forever. Soon I will be in heaven dancing with the Savior, singing songs of mercy to the Son of glory, author of my story. I can't wait till I see you standing there before me. What Abby is helping us see in her song is is that we can wrestle with the pain from our past and we can live in the suffering of this present moment. But but she is captivated by this vision of heaven and that vision of heaven, being captivated by that, is what can help us persevere and have a different point of view on the sufferings of this present moment. As Abby and I talked this week, she testified how, yes, like there's a bit of the kingdom of heaven right here and now as our perspective changes on all that is going on around us. It reminds me of one last quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. Maybe you've heard the the expression, Oh, they're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. Well, Lewis is responding to that sentiment, and he's saying, No, that's not the case at all, actually. It's not that. It's, it's one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And then his famous words are, if you aim at heaven you will get earth thrown in. If you aim at the earth, you will get neither. Which ought to remind us of the words of Jesus. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? You see, we can be captivated by heaven. We can we can listen to Jesus' teaching on the afterlife and it can cause us to actually do the most good in this present world If our aim is set at earth, then we'll forfeit our soul. But if we aim at heaven, what does it do for us? Oh, All of a sudden, it fills us with this confidence. Now I can sacrifice my worldly things. I can sacrifice my worldly wealth because I know I'm going to be wealthy in heaven. So I can make sacrifices here. I can take risks here because I have confidence of where I will be in the next. It gives us a sense of peace. 
I don't have to solve this argument. I don't have to take revenge because I know God is the righteous judge and he will settle the score. It gives us a sense of optimism, a sense of courage and this deep spiritual fulfillment even in the midst of trials now because of the vision and the hope that we have of one day heaven but current king reigning in our hearts even right now. What did Jesus teach about the afterlife? I don't think there's any way around it. He taught us that heaven is real. So let's not edit the words of Jesus. Let's not pretend that we who are blind know more than the way, the truth, and the life. Let's surrender to the truth. Let's sit in that discomfort. Maybe it will humble us to realize that we're not in control. We didn't write the truth. He does. And maybe it will provoke us and prick our hearts when we realize that 99.5% of the people you meet this week assume they're not going to go to hell. And that's so sobering. But we know the truth. How do we be salt and light? How do we give a message of love and forgiveness and hope and truth to a whole lot of blind people that are being told things by other blind people? How do we help them hear the truth? Jesus taught us that heaven is real. Jesus taught us that heaven is, hell is real. Jesus taught us that heaven is real. Jesus is preparing a place for you in his father's house. If you trust him as your Lord and Savior, you don't have to wait for eternal life. It is in you right now. And that kingdom of heaven can be an experience you have on a day-to-day basis as you trust in him, as you're motivated and have courage and joy. But we all look forward to heaven. Like those songs that we've already sung and the song we're going to sing to close is when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. But before we sing that song, would you pray with me? I'm actually going to invite you to, to, to bow your head and to, and to close your eyes. And I want to ask you one question before I pray. In the privacy of your own heart, here's the question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how sure are you that you are going to be in heaven with Jesus when you die? So 10 is very confident. 5 is like 50-50 shot and 1 is like a confident no. If you're anything less than a 10, I want to pray with you right now. The scripture tells us, 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Listen, I know that I have eternal life, not because of how good I am, not because of the Ten Commandments I've kept, not because I'm better than you, because I'm sure I'm not, but because I trust in Jesus' truth. And His truth says that you can know as well that you have eternal life. I want you to have that confidence because that will change how you live this week. Have you admitted your sin? Have you trusted in His death His resurrection. Have you committed to Him as your King? If you have, then have confidence. 
Let me pray for us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.